0: This is pet life radio let's talk pets and welcome welcome we're here live with Dr. Jeff Warber your host for the next 30 minutes here on pet life radios ask the vets with Dr Jeff and on Instagram live here for you here for your pets just Anything you want to talk about, now is the time to do it. Uh, we're here for the next 30 minutes. So we got plenty of time and uh, lots of things to talk about. Already have questions about the virus update or whatever is update. So we'll talk about that. Those of you on Pet Life Radio, ask away, send in your questions, join us here live, whatever be your pleasure. And uh well, we'll talk pets. That's why we're here. So let's, I guess, start with the virus update. And um, so basically, We don't know any uh, so many new things. Other than we we know what it's not. The thought is that it's really not a single bug. It's it's almost like a a composite of some a lot of different organisms. Uh, You know, we have Bordetella, we have parainfluenza, we have influenza, and they're all sort of combined together with some probably something new, and uh, it's caused this more of a a severe pneumonia. Now, interestingly, Bordetella, aka the proverbial kennel cough. I mean, you know. That's something that is a. It's a hacky cough. It's a tracheitis. We call it infectious ITB, infectious tracheobronchitis. And you no know, it does cause some coughing, but it doesn't usually get into the lung tissue. The airways, yes. The bronchi. You know, that's why they call it infectious bronchitis. But when it comes to the influenza and the parent influenza, those are more lung tissue interstitial. We call it, and more of an pneumonia. So the fact that that this particular new disease. Uh, is causing more pneumonias, it lends to think there may be a viral or a deeper bacterial component, something like mycoplasma. So what's interesting is there's been nothing isolated, no specific new thing. So they feel it's a complex. And so therefore, what can you do? There's still no treatment for the actual new additive, whatever's adding to this problem, but we can control through vaccination and medication, the Bordetella component. We can't well, that's through treatment. Doxycycline, clavamox, which is cl- clavulinic acid, and amoxicillin together, uh, we can vaccinate against Bordetella. We can vaccinate against parainfluenza. We can vaccinate against influenza. The newer strain, the H3N2, is the one that is probably causing the most concern. H3N8 is sort of like passe, but most of the newer vaccines on the market get take care of both the H2N3 and the H2N8. Anyway. Or, said that reverse. It's H3N8 and H3N2. So <laughs> that makes a really big difference. But so that's kind of where we're at. We're seeing fewer and fewer cases. So I think that almost like when we had that lepto scare a couple of years ago, it's not as concerning. Very, very few dogs have passed away from it. I've had a couple of cases. In fact, I was at dinner last night with one of my friends who actually had one of the dogs that did get a pneumonia and um, dogs doing great. Dogs doing fine. So that's, that's really good. All right, so let's see. Uh, let's get some more questions here. Senior dogs' eyes are looking like there's a film on it, no normal. Ah, great question. So what we see in older dogs, let's first describe it. If you look at your dog's eyes, older dogs, the actual pupil, instead of being black, kind of looks like it's a, a bluish, grayish haze to it. That is a normal age change called lenticular or nuclear sclerosis, lenticular lens Nuclear is another word for the lens, so it's sclerosis, sclerosis, as with anything else, means scarring. So what happens is, as the dogs age, the lens sits on a lens capsule. It's a front and the back to the capsule, and the gelatinous lens material is, is in the middle. Now, cataract is where the actual lens material opacifies. It becomes white and thick and hardened, no impeding vision, and that's when we talk about cataract surgery. The nuclear cataractous sclerosis. It's not the gelatinous material that's hardening; it is just the lens capsule. So, by definition, it is a cataractus or pre-cataractus state. But it doesn't really impede vision—not much anyway. And um, maybe when they get much older, it can, like they say, in darker environments at night, they may not see as well because obviously it is affecting some of the light that's let in. But it is an age change. What we joke that if For that condition to turn into a cataract where it actually impedes vision and gets like white and where you can get no light in or out, the dog would probably have to live to about 40. So clearly, that's not going to happen. So anyway, no treatment for it. Just know what happens. You might see an effect in lower light as they get much older, but it's something that looks worse than it is. It doesn't really, as I said, affect the the vision, and um, they do just fine. But the good news about it is Aging an animal is sometimes a challenge, right? They wear their teeth indifferently. If a dog is an outdoors dog and probably a street dog, it probably has much worse dentition. And as teeth are worn, the gums might be irritated. So there are a lot of characteristics we look at to try to determine a pet's age. So we, of course, check the mouth. We do that in horses too. But the good news is is about that. If I look at a dog's eyes and see no sclerosis, I can tell you with pretty much confidence, he's younger than seven. Because this age usually kicks in, starts happening around seven to eight years of age. So um, it kind of helps us a little bit. And if I see a dog that, that you know, they when they adopt adopted from the shelter, they were told, oh, the dog is four years old. And then I get to look at the eyes and they're, oh, my God, that's close. I said, no, they're like more like eight or nine or 10 years old. So um, anyway, they you know, usually at the shelter. They always tell you, it's, it's they want you to feel that you're going to get more, more years out of it. So they kind of fudge a little bit on age. All right, here's a question. 16-year-old Jack Russell Terry is being prescribed 50 milligrams of gabapentin. She has cried out of nowhere a few times. Well, so let's talk gabapentin. I love gabapentin, by the way. We started using it way back for basically cancer-type pain. And these animals that were going on to cancer treatment, so the cancer itself, painful, we used to use gabapentin. It also has a pretty decent sedative effect, which makes it really good if you know because of the pain. They're not sleeping well. So now we use it really it's just one of our anti-pain analgesic medications for both reasons. Number one, that it does seem to relieve pain. And number two, it also really brings them down a little bit, it calms them down. So it makes them we'll send home post-surgery we'll home with some gabapentin So we don't want to run around like crazy after surgery. So it'll it'll kind of keep them a little calmer and it really does help relieve some pain. So it's, it's really a great medication. So a uh, little Jack Russell, we yeah, probably about half of a hundred. It comes 100 and 300. Um, you can also get it in liquid, which is 50 milligrams per ml. By the way, if, if uh, your Jack Russell is getting 50 milligrams and she is easier to medicate with liquid than pills, then you might want to look into the liquid. It's perfect. It's 250 per five, which is 50 milligram per, and it's great. So that's basically what the gabapentin does for her. It does relieve pain. It's a, it's good it. Now it's not narcotic, so if you need I mean, something major, major pain, you might want to use something you know even stronger, but it's great. Now remember also one thing, and the other nice thing about gabapentin is it can be used along with either steroid or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And for example, you don't want to mix a steroid with a non-steroid because that can cause too much gastric upset and ulcers in the stomach, et cetera. But you can mix gabapentin with either of those. And, you know, people always, you know, they'll go home post-surgically and they'll go home with just a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. Often we do that as well, depending on the surgery, how much anticipated pain we're expecting, et cetera. So an analgesic, when you hear aspirin as an analgesic, no, it's not really. By definition, it's going to relieve pain via its anti-inflammatory property. You decrease inflammation, you will decrease pain. But it's not like a, a, a narcotic that actually hits the pain receptors. And the same thing with our non So if you have a dog post-surgically that you're really expecting to be in more pain, then yeah, you could do the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, things like meloxicam, things like vetprofen, carprofen that are commonly used. And then also you can have your dog on gabapentin. So it's pretty cool. Okay, is extreme cold weather dangerous for older dogs? The answer is dog, extreme cold weather is dangerous for all dogs. You know, if it's too cold for you, Now, you talk about your Arctic breeds, your Samoyeds, your Huskies, your Malamutes, Chows even. A lot of these dogs have very, Akitas, very, very thick coats, and they can withstand the cold better than many. But if you notice, they still have to be moving. Even an Arctic breed is in sub-zero weather, especially with wind chill factor, and isn't able to move, then it's very dangerous for them as well. So the heat exchange, you have to get them going. So when you have much older dogs that are already less active because of things like arthritis or just aging, aren't able to move around as much, then that cold is going to affect that dog who's like 13 or 14 more than that same dog, same size, same breed at, at seven. So at least the seven-year-old is more you know, mobile so they can actually get around. So it, it is, it's a problem. Don't think that our oh, dogs are okay. If you have a if it's really cold, if you're somewhere in the east, northeast in the in the midwest where I mean it hits freezing temperatures. I've been there. I've been in Kansas City in the winter, all right? I've been in Chicago in the winter. It is cold. And so you want to make sure that dogs have some shelter from the cold, especially from the wind. It's it's the wind like Chicago makes it crazy because it's not just the cold, it's the wind chill. So you want to um have some sort of either clothing on them, a dog house, something that's going to shelter them from the cold and now there are very very safe space type heaters that you can put in these enclosures if you have to keep them outside my recommendation of course is if it gets that cold try to keep them inside as much as possible or if they're outside you know moving it's not as bad like yes it's okay to go for their walks now remember also that the ice can affect their feet it gets through the pads and they can get frostbite easily if they're if they're just sitting around. And a lot of municipalities also are, because of public thoroughfares and sidewalks and things, they might put some chemicals or salt down on the ice. That is also something that can be an irritant. So my recommendation for that is if you're going to walk around in that kind of weather, you definitely want to have like some sort of booties. And when you get home, clean the, the, the bottom of the feet. Make sure you get any of that ice that's stuck to the hair out because uh, that can cause issues as well. All right, cancer has come back, but it's a dot in a moment in their liver. So we know that a lot of these cancers, you could take care of them, whether it's going to be chemo, whether it's going to be radiation, whether it's going to be surgical removal. But yeah, even if you have, and this is something that's very, even when you have clean margins, there is a lot of stuff that's that's so barely microscopic that, and there's some certain cancers, depending on the cancer, that we often say that once we even make a diagnosis of a cancer, whether it's osteosarcoma, hemangiosarcoma, mammary adenocarcinoma in cats once you see it and you remove it it's there it's going to metastasize it's going to spread and the, the key target organs for the spread are going to be liver and lungs the two l's liver and lungs so you can't beat it i can do a, a beautiful surgery removing a, a really you know horrendous disgusting spleen because of splenic get it all i mean we're taking the entire spleen so it's not even do you get good margins we took oh, darn thing so of course we got it all and yet we still have a, a very guarded prognosis, um, anywhere from three on the short side to 20 months on the long side, um, that thing's going to hit liver or lungs. And osteosarcoma, bone cancer, that's why we say with bone cancer, it's the same thing. Yes, you can amputate, you could do the carboplatin or the cisplatin, you can, you can do the, the chemo, you can do radiation, but by the time you see the lesion in the bone and you say, yes, we need to do something about it, you can biopsy it. And it it comes back osteo. Sometimes it's so classic looking, you don't even you just you just do the amputation. It's not a cure, unfortunately. It's not a cure. All right, let's take a break, real quick. We'll be back right after these short messages from our sponsors here on Pet Life Radio. Don't go. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. Radio. (laughs) PetLifeRadio.com. Okay, so we're back. We had a question during the break about blue light versus red light therapy. I should say very little known, very little that I know when it comes to veterinary medicine. You know, blue light therapy is more cosmetic, skin, acne. Depigmentation spots, et cetera. Uh, red light therapy is more used for therapeutic purposes. Uh, deeper tissue wounds helps healing arthritis, things like that, deeper skin issues. So it's, it's more therapeutic than cosmetic. That sort of was my, my simple answer. If anybody has any better or more, let me know. All right. Um, rescue. All of my dogs have the virus. One is completely negative on everything, the other was positive for Bordetella and Mycoplasma. No one's got anywhere. Oh, shoot, I'm so confused. So, so there we go. That that says it all, really. There's no test for it. We have no idea. They're getting sicker than they are with just Bordetella or just Mycoplasma, which can be treated with medicines. So, you know, there's still too much we don't know. Uh, there are teams at a number of veterinary schools. My friend Mike Lappin out of Colorado State has been studying it. We have Dr. David Needle, who's at the in the University of New Hampshire Veterinary Diagnostic Lab. So, it's not like it's being ignored. They're going after, trying to find out what it is. But I will tell you. That when new things like this happen, they kind of get blown out of proportion, especially if there's a death. But there are, you know, probably thousands upon thousands of dogs that have had some sort of respiratory infections in the last several, you know, weeks since all this came out and have not died. So very relatively, I should say that. Now, if it happens to be one of your dogs or it happens to, who cares about relativity? But relatively, it is not a, a deadly condition. Those, it's it's almost like the same comorbidity that we learned about with uh, COVID early on, that the patients that were dying of it, there were other problems with these patients. It was cancer. It was elderly. It was diabetes. It was obesity. There was some other immune compromise going on. For example, I reported, oh God, a couple of years ago on our show about capnocytophaga. Capnocytophaga is a weird, rare infection. It's a bacterium. And what hit the news about it is a guy is sitting in a hospital bed Having just had his arms and legs amputated because of Capnocytophaga, apparently it gets in; it causes so much nerve tissue and blood damage through sepsis in the in the extremities that to save a life you need to have these limbs amputated, which is, I mean, horrendous. And first of all, the guy said, "Oh, where does it come from?" Uh, That's the key right there. Now to scare you a little bit, it comes from dog saliva. It is in dogs' mouths. Now. Now, how many times have, show of hands, you been licked by a dog in the face, all right? How about me 20 times a day? And I mean, not times, 20 different dogs a day. So I was listening to an interview with a pediatric infectious disease specialist, and she says, basically, she goes, I have three kids, I have dogs, and my dogs lick my kids in the face all the time, and it doesn't bother me one bit. So these patients, when you get more depth into their stories were all somehow immunocompromised. Had other diseases. One was on chemo for something else. I mean, come on. So I'm not going to stop doing this after 40 years of practicing, let alone the 30 years before that, are <laughs> 29 years before that, that I was um, being licked in the face all the time. So we just can't get people freaked out because it's, it's rare. So the dogs that have had problems with this respiratory bug, Typically, were dogs that had some sort of other problem going on. So I don't want you to stop, you know, getting rid of your dogs or or keeping them outdoors because you're afraid. Let's see, my cloud chaser. Where are all the internists? My friend's cat probably has lymphoma. It's been weeks again. Well, first of all, cat lymphoma. A lot of GPs. I treat feline lymphoma. I've treated a lot of cancers. I mean, obviously they require chemotherapy. I do a lot of chemo. You know, but this is understand. This is the difference. And I'm not, it's not a social uh, comment. It just, it is what it is. When I was in school, there were a lot fewer specialists. So, general practice veterinarians, what we learned in vet school were a lot of things that now they're, the students are being taught this is something should be seen by a specialist. I mean, even surgery, the soft tissue surgery I do as a GP is more than these young doctors coming out of school. They've never done these. Not only did we do them, we were taught them. We actually, in vet school, we were taught to do cystotomies and splenectomies and even a heart surgery procedure. We were doing intestinal surgeries, we we're doing resections and anastomoses, we were removing tumors. I mean, that's what we learned. Now they're teaching basic surgery. Yes, a spay neuter. Yes, maybe a little lump and bump. Anything that more than that, they're encouraging these young students to send them to the specialist, which I, I guess is okay. So we are seeing more and more specialists. So because like internal medicine, there I mean, of all the specialists, internists are probably the most popular. And um, it's hard to tell. I treat lymphoma all the time, but I'm treating one right now. Obviously, we have to stay on top of things. But interestingly, some of the older chemotherapies, the one protocols that I use, I use the Wisconsin protocol. I use the CHOP called CHOP protocol, also COP. I'm doing something now that's a little newer uh, because money is an object. It's th- uh, once every three weeks, an injection called oxyrubicin, which is Adriamycin and also prednisone, which is so easy to give. And this it, it's a small dog doing great. So talk to some other of the GPs in your area. if There are many, many still that are probably treating, especially lymphoma. Lymphoma is one of the easiest to treat because the, most of the meds are easy to get. You don't need to uh, go through a lot of, jump through a lot of hoops. Another problem is the industry makes it more and more difficult to handle chemotherapy. So you have to have specialized equipment. You have to have these, called, these things called hoods where you are mixing the drugs and handling your drugs. You're using, you have to use obviously gloves. as you. So the industry has made it more difficult for general practitioners to administer chemotherapy, uh, almost encouraging all of us to send them to um, uh, specialists. But yes, internists should be able to do it. Uh, certainly cancer groups. Where do you live? Let me know where you live. Let me see if I know somebody in that area. All right, next. Is chemo for my 16-year-old not an option? All right, let's talk about that for a second because it's, it's a great topic. Is age a disease? Do we do or not do something simply because of age? And my feelings are we do not let age be the deciding factor because age is not a disease. The condition of the animal is a disease. I did surgery. I know I've told this story a zillion times. My poor old Grover, 15 years old, well, late into his 14th, the end of his 14th year, developed a tumor on his prepuce and it was growing it was getting ugly and really it was ruptured it was bleeding all over the place it was it seemed like it was growing by day so our options were very simple either i'm going in or we're putting him to sleep and hey look hey he was 15 14 in in a few days going to be 15. it's good life for a labrador retriever so yeah no problem but i just didn't sit well with it so i um i took blood tests and x-rays whatever it was had not entered into his chest or liver. His bloods were amazing for a 14 and in a few days, 15-year-old dog. So I scheduled surgery. Actually, the day of his 15th birthday, did a very, very long, detailed surgery. It was pretty, pretty. It was very challenging surgery, by the way. Very invasive. I'm going in down towards cutting tumor away from the body wall and down in the groin. I knew I couldn't get it all, but I got most of it. I put drains in. He healed well. He tolerated the surgery, healed well. And then I took the drains out. After he healed and took the stitches out, I started him on a medication called Palladia, which is a godsend for mast cell tumors. And he lived a year and a half. I put him to sleep at 16 and a half, not because of the tumor. So what does that tell you? Age is not a disease. So depending on the type of tumor, depending on, now always do, you got to stage it. Meaning you got to test other organs, make sure it's not there. You got to check the x-rays or uh, ultrasound for liver and x-rays for the lungs. And if you have clean liver, clean lungs, it doesn't seem to have spread, all right? And all the blood work came back fine. Absolutely, I would. If there are, I mean, other things that are already spread, then you're just putting everybody through torture. Once it starts to spread, it's not a good thing, especially in liver and lungs, the metastatic disease organs. So anyway, you need to look at the big picture. So it's, it's not an easy answer. There's more to it. But I would certainly investigate. And if your dog is otherwise in good shape, then I have no concerns. So taking ursodiol, serenia, the gabapentin, half teaspoon renal K every day. It sounds like, you know, keep doing that stuff. That's fine. As long as the dog is not suffering. It's, it's pretty, my, my criteria are pretty simple. For annual physical, which blood work would be appropriate for senior dogs? Better understand what's appropriate. The only concern is AIDS, uh, at least for us. So when we get to seniors, I do what's called a full panel. If it was a senior cat, I do something called this 720, which is the, it's a Super Chem CBC with both T4 thyroid and free T4 by ED thyroid because older cats are notorious for hyperthyroidism. Uh, they come with SDMA, they come with, you know, PSL, you know, with pancreatic specific lipase. And for dogs, I will do the same except just without the T4 by ED. We do the regular thyroid. Now, if I suspect a hypothyroid condition based on the physical exam, what the dog looks like how it's behaving etc then i'll do the both thyroids too the cost between the two of them is like 30 or 40 bucks to do with or without the thyroid so if you if there's any suspicion for thyroid related disease i would do both and of course they both include your analysis so that's the blood work which i do super chem cbc T4 for sure with the dog, T4 and free T4 by ED for the cat and urinalysis. Do you have any questions about that? Feel free to reach out to me. Doctor rescue is vaccinated for rabies. And I think in November 22 is the safer to be vaccinated for age now. now yeah, November of 22, oh, for sure. Now, for depending on where you live, uh, rabies and distemper parvo are both three-year vaccines. Now, if it's adopted from a rescue and there's no record at all of a prior vaccination, then yes, now, a year later, I would boost. And now both of these, depending on what state you live in, uh, are good for three years afterwards. So now, if there had been vaccines before from either the owner, if they brought paperwork in, the other records from another vet at some point, then that rabies, if it's an adult dog, I assume, over a year of age, should be good for three years as well as this temper parvo. So I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm an anti Unnecessary vaccine. So, if the vaccine is really not needed based on prior vaccine history, or for a disease in your area that it's not a disease, that's a problem. Then I don't vaccinate. But other things, then absolutely. All right. Let me read that out loud. So, as all you know, I work with Casey. I first of all, I'm her veterinarian, and I work at KTLA. Uh, whenever they need me to come in and do a story, I'm there. So, so Casey Montoya posted this about South Central Shelter. It is worse than heart wrenching. Please try to adopt and not shop. My Malamute is a purebred from a kill shelter 150 miles away from my home during COVID. So yes, I uh, it's taken two and a half weeks to get an appointment and she's ending up at Access in Santa Fe. Wow, that's that's crazy. That's crazy. All right, if this request is not accidental, hang on one second. Let me say goodbye here on Pet Life Radio because my half hour is up. Now, for those of you at both places, I am flying out next Sunday for... Steamboat Springs, Colorado for the Colorado Veterinary Medical Association, Skies, that's ski CE meeting. And uh, I'm a snowboarder and I'm I love this conference, it's great. And I just found out sadly that next year the North American Veterinary Conference, VMX that I just came from, I was, you know, live from the show last week. That is very late in January. It's the last week of January. And guess what also takes place the very last end of January is Skies Colorado Vet Med Association Ski Meeting, and they overlap. Why VMX is so late next year in 2025? I have no idea. I'm not happy about it, of course, but that meeting to me is is more important to attend. So I'm going to miss guys next year. I'm really bummed. But anyway, I'm leaving Sunday. I think because I'm going to Colorado, I got to fly through Denver, then from Denver to a little airport. I think it's called Hayden something airport uh, near Steamboat. So I will probably not be live here Next Sunday, I don't exactly remember how early my flight is, but I, I think I'll be on a plane by nine o'clock. Am I think I fight leave at seven in the morning. So I'm bummed. If you have any questions through the week, please feel free to reach out to me. And uh, other than that, thanks for joining me here on Pet Life Radio. And um, we will, um, I'll see you in two weeks. All right, hopefully, be well. Let's talk pets every week on demand only on PetLifeRadio.com.